Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right. Absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields related to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the important issues of our times. Growing plants that thrive in our yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWANTTOSAVESEEDS.COM and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today we're chatting with our own seed expert, Bill McDorman, as he shares some wisdom and discusses thoughts and concerns that might occupy the minds of those of us who are saving seeds. Welcome to the show today, Bill. Hello, everyone. I am so happy to be here again. This is always so much fun. You know, I realized the other day, Bill, that I believe that this is our fourth year doing these. I think we launched Seed School for the first time four years ago. It might have been five years ago, but for sure four years ago, which, you know, time flies, especially when we're getting older, I think, you know? Yeah, you would think we'd start to learn how to do this by now, huh? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, I mean, I still feel like I learn something every week, and I learn something from the questions, you know, that the really smart people always come in with for these programs. Mm-hmm. I feel so blessed and honored to be part of a circle of people. You know, we all have resources. We've all learned things. You know, we're just part of that web, and it's nice that we can play our part in that web. But, you know, I want to invite everyone else to do that also. You know, this is a chance for us to come together and learn. And who knows how long we'll have all these toys, or maybe they'll get better. Maybe there'll be disruptions. But, you know, on the planet I'm living on right now, it's time to stiffen up your back and pay attention and learn what you can. (laughs) No kidding. So a couple of things about what you just said. I found for myself, and I know you know this, Bill, but maybe our listeners don't know this out there. I actually flunked out of college in 1981, and I went back in 1999 and loved it the second time around. And one of the things that I noticed in the space in between my two traditional college experiences was that pretty much every semester from 1981 to 1999, or at least every year, if I was interested in learning something, you know what I did? I went and found the Phoenix College. That's our community college here. I went and found their catalog, and I took a class. 
And I took classes on writing. I took classes on running a small business, on solar energy, on wastewater management, choir for fun. Uh, you know, during that 18-year uh, period between when I flunked out and when I actually went back, I accumulated 128 credit hours. That's enough is, to graduate. That's enough to graduate. Now, they, you know, they didn't all transfer and, you know, so on and so on. Right. So when I actually went back to Arizona State University and delved into my degrees, not all of them transferred, but I was lit up. I never stopped learning. Yeah. And I still don't. Yeah, it's absolutely necessary, not only to healthy communities and societies, but to a healthy mind, I think. That natural curiosity, I love that about you, you know, yeah. that insatiable. You know, it feeds on itself. Once yeah. you learn one thing... And then all of a sudden you go, oh, my gosh, I didn't even think about that. But now what about this? And that sheds <laughs> right. light on that. It's not going to have enough time. <laughs> That's what's starting to happen to me as I go. I woke up the other day and realized that, you know, I may only have maybe 20 really productive growing seasons left. Mm-hmm. That's hardly enough time to get my, my corn grex figured out, you know? Hold on. <laughs> I can't believe, I just got chills all the way down to my toes. When you put it that way, it seems like such a short amount of time, because I'm not that far behind you. Yeah. Shout out to the folks listening tonight, if you're younger, is get started on a project with seeds. You can change the world. We've got multiple examples of individuals that have been growing things in their own backyards for their own personal needs, that have created varieties of things that have gone on to be bestsellers for a whole century and been important to people. We saw it in the 19th century with James L. Reed and his corn. We saw it in the 20th century with Dave Christensen, who's still going, you know, like 44 years later with wow. a variety of corn that grows at five and 6,000 feet up in Montana. The earliest, fastest maturing corn in the world, and it's growing on all seven continents. And that just happened from one guy in his yard in Montana. And you can do that, but you need years, you know, right. to really pull yeah. off Great one. And so get started. That would be my advice now. Yes, absolutely. And I said there were two things a couple of minutes ago. And thing number two, I did an interview today for the podcast, and I interviewed a gentleman named Gabe Brown. He has got 5,000 acres or so in North Dakota. And he's basically doing natural farming on the space. They've been doing it for 20 years. So they're raising oh crops. And, yeah. I mean, you know, the whole notion of the crop rotation with the cattle and the goats and the chickens and so on and so on. It's a whole new version of that. But here's the thing that floored me that was epic. He's turning the business over to his son and he said these words, we have a 200 year plan. I'm getting chills right now. We have a 200 year plan for our farm. Wow. Yeah, multi-generational. Sit with that. Wow. That goes back to the quote from the gentleman. I think it was the Land Institute. He says, if you're not planning you know, for farther than your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. Yeah. The reality of that is that there are just so many variables, you know, and it's time to be humble as human. Just because we're so smart and we figure out so many things and we carry around our iPhones and we have satellites and rockets and all those things doesn't mean we know diddly about our own backyards yeah. and the succession of plants and the animals and the interaction of insects 
We don't know the names of all the microflora in the soil. I think that's what we've learned, you know, in the last couple of decades. We don't even have names for all the organisms in the soil and know how it works, really, in some cases. And that's what, you know, provides all of our food. You know, that's where I get that. It's, it's time to be humble and realize, hey, it may take more than my lifetime to figure this out. It right. may take 200 years just to figure out how to farm on our piece of property. Wow, right. that's Wendell Berry level. I think that's where he is too, you know, in thinking about this. I love that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Wow. So, anyways, that was just a couple of things that happened today that were like wow, realizations wow. and wows Thank for me. And those both came well, out of my conversation with Gabe. Gosh, that's great. Well, you know, that segues a little bit into what I wanted to talk about tonight, and that's wild plants. You know, so much of the time people come to our seed schools or do seed school online because they want to learn how to save vegetable seeds. And now we're expanding that into saving grain seeds, you know, because the grains are self-pollinated and easy to save. And we can garden grains in our own backyard. So now we're talking about a local food movement that actually is starting to have a chance, if it pays attention, to actually feed itself locally. And there's new studies out that show that about 90% of the people in the United States could be fed within 100 miles of where they're living right now if we just redesign the system. Then that would give us a chance to redesign it around these natural principles. So this is hopeful. We have a way out of this whole industrial farming nightmare. And we're starting to see the pathways for it. So more as and more. people come into the, our seed schools and they start thinking about, you know, saving seeds, then all of a sudden, inevitably, somebody will ask a question or they'll be in class or whatever, or we'll do a field trip to look at a garden and they'll look around and they go, oh, what is this weed over here or this thing in the alley or this flower? Look, does that have seeds? Can I save those seeds? And it's like once you get your mind looking down and realizing that there's seeds, this abundance there that you can take part in this cycle and help make things better, you know, and create incredible abundance where you are. And then you look up just a little and you realize, oh, my God, there are plants all around me that uh-huh. are making seeds. And I don't even know what they are yet. And I've heard that maybe some of them could be medicinal. Some of them could be oh, edible, yeah. edible wild plants, even in my own alley. So seed saving takes on a whole new dimension. You know, and that's where I love to come in and say, hey, okay, let's go back and remember your seventh grade biology. Okay, Mm -hmm. people, do you remember all flowering plants produce seeds? All of them. Whenever you see a flower, there are seeds. So now start looking around at everything that's flowers and everything that's ever flowered around you and start looking for the abundance and the ability or part you can play in that its cycle by saving its seeds. So if you have any questions at all tonight about doing that, about individual identifications, how to find things, if there's rules or laws, techniques for doing it, I'll touch on a few of those things tonight. But I'd love to answer any questions that people have about that. Perfect. Well, interesting you should go here because I have Lyme disease and I'm pretty public about that. And one of the plants that we use to help treat the symptoms of Lyme is called Cida acuta, S-I-D-A-A-C-U-T-A. Do you know it? No, I'm just curious. Cida acuta, the common wireweed, is a species of flowering plant in the mallow family, Malavaceae. It is believed to have originated in Central America, but today has a pan-tropical distribution and is considered a weed in some areas. Got a pretty little white yellow flower on it, and the extract that I buy for it, it's a powder from a weed. 
So, you know, that goes right to, you know, right to your weed story. Yeah, yeah, I was just looking it up here. Just so everyone knows what I'm doing, there's a really cool website. It took the U.S. government decades to centralize in one plant, place all of its data on plants. Really? The images, I need to know about this. Synonym, classification. They have maps to show you its range. They talk about whether it's a noxious weed, whether it's invasive or native. It's really cool. It's plants.usda.gov. Wow, that's too easy. Okay. And you can search for the names of plants either using their scientific or their common name. There's a little right up in the left-hand side, or its symbol. Turns out that databases for the governments, and they're trying to standardize this all over the world, is come up with four or five-letter codes for every flowering plant. So I just typed in Cida acuta, scientific name, and boom, here it is. It shows wow. that it's called common wireweed. It grows wild in Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, it oh, looks yeah, like look Georgia, Florida. South. Yep. yep, South Carolina. There it is. And then there shows that there's some up. Is that Pennsylvania even? Kind of a strange thing. And it's a Malvaceae. Yep. That tells me a lot. The family. You know, it's really helpful, folks, if you learn some botanical Latin, simply because it helps you shortcut stuff. It may seem overwhelming to learn all these new scientific names, but once you do, it's a really great shortcut. You know, we have cheeseweed. You know, we have sporalsia or globe mallow that grows here in our part of the world, which right. are both like that. So that would lead me to believe that I could, you know, give me a little bit of an identification for the plant. Right. So, wow, Greg, this cool. is great. You could probably grow your own is what they I doing. know. Yeah. It's actually plants, plural, P-L-A-N-T-S dot U-S-D-A dot gov. dot gov. Yes. Awesome. I had no idea. This is an incredible resource. This is where everybody goes first. The other thing it does is it helps me with name drift. I call it. It turns out that botanical <laughs> Latin is a living, you know, laboratory. What we're trying to do is apply, you know, a grid of nomenclature over a moving, living thing, the plant life in the yeah. world. And it's always moving and changing, always cross-pollinating. As environments change, especially now, it changes. It goes up in elevation, might look a little different. So is that a different plant or is that the same plant, but it just looks a little different? So those kinds of arguments are happening all the time. And as yeah. those arguments happen, names change. Somebody comes in, the splitters come in and go, oh, no, no, that is not all the same plant now. We need two different species to describe that. Uh -huh. After that happens for a few years, the lumpers come back in. A botanist will come back in. Case okay, no, no, no. They're so similar. We're going to lump them back together all in one species. Oh, so there's just yeah. all sorts of natural arguments about that. But learning the Latin can help really dial you in, and then you can see how those names are changing. And especially then, you know, the first thing I did was look to see if this grew here where we live in Arizona, and if it, right, doesn't, it doesn't, then where does it live? And then, you know, I love to think about growing my own medicine. And this is a native plant. That's the first thing this shows also. This is not yeah. an introduced plant. So yeah. out of its range in Arizona, it's probably not invasive. Right. Well, and here's another interesting thing. So the person that treats me for the Lyme disease is having trouble getting tinctures from dandelions right now. Isn't that amazing? I hope somebody's listening. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Take Exactly. It's only like there's an unlimited source of the source material. <laughs> right. Wildflowers and weeds. That's what we're here to talk about tonight. So I've already distracted you for about 20 minutes. Let's talk about them. I just want to tell some stories because I think they're informative. I've learned a lot through stories. So one time I was in Haley, Idaho. I was giving a medicinal plant walk. I tried to find a place where people could, you know, sort of conjugate for my class. I would expect about 20 to 25 people to show up. So I had them all drive to Hop 
Porter Park in Haley, Idaho. There was parking there, and we all met there. And I get out of the car, and people are starting to come. And we're going to spend like two or three hours walking around identifying plants. There's a walk along the river there, and we were going to be in a beautiful place, so it's going to be a nice day. Mm -hmm. Well, long story short, we never got out of the parking lot. Why? Because I started (laughs) looking down and around, and the most medicinal and important plants, I thought, that I could teach these folks were right there in the parking lot. It was just like you didn't have to walk anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I had a woman in that class that actually got angry at me because she wanted to go out into the wild and find wild plants, you know, for her medicine. And yeah, you can do that. But it was more important for me just to find the medicine. This is like your common wire, you know. Another great story is that a friend of mine from a long time ago, Ed Smith, we used to call him Herbal Ed Smith. Greg, I don't know if you met him. He'd be a great guy to have on one of your podcasts. He started Herb Farm, P-H-A-R-M. Everybody who's been into some sort of health food store in the last 25 years has seen his tincture bottles. They're orange labels. Now they have a little bit of green on the label, but it's Herb, P-H-A-R-M. They're the most widely selling tinctures in North America. And Ed is a pharmacist. He was a trained as a pharmacist. And one of the things he taught me, and this really helped me, was that up until World War II, every year, the USD, he called it the United States Dispensatory. It's about a 600-page book. I'm sure they don't print it on paper, but in those uh, days they did. And every year they would release a new USD. And USDA was all the medicine available to pharmacists and doctors in the United States at the time. And up until World War II, half, get this, half of it was still plants. It was plants. It had dandelion in it. I'll bet uh-huh. it had cida acuta in it. Yeah. And it talked about it from a pharmacist's point of view. How do you get the essentials out? How can you standardize the dose? How do you prepare it? How would you prescribe it? Those sorts of things are in it. I mean, it was just a wealth of information. So he said, go find old pharmacies. And this was easier 20 years ago when I learned about it. These things are still around and they're still in libraries. You can actually go and find, you know, one of the world's best herbals in the form of the USDA if you can find, I think it was volume 43 or earlier and that's right around World War II so if you're interested in wild plants and medicine that's just almost a free resource yeah I was on the phone one day talking with Ed Smith and he goes whoa Bill my boat finally came in this was 10 or 15 years after he'd started his company he was already successful and I go what are you talking about and he said well the parking lot here at the herb farm in Williams, Oregon, where we are, has had a terrible noxious weed problem. It's a gravel parking lot. It's about, I can't remember how big it was. You know, it was big enough for all the people that come to work there. Every year it was getting overgrown with this weed. And they didn't want to spray. These are all, you know, the higher-minded, shall we call it, refugees from suburbia that ended up in southwest Oregon, you know, after the 60s. So that we're not using chemicals, you know. We're going to do better than that. We're into herbs and medicine. But what do we do? He was asking me what to do with this herb, this weed, this noxious weed in his parking lot until the winds changed in the use of herbs in the United States and St. John's wort was rediscovered as something that would help people with mild mental disturbances. Remember that? When St. John's wort came on the scene to help calm people down, it was being prescribed for a huge number of things. Well, guess what? That was the noxious weed in his parking lot. For years, he had been trying to get rid of, and now it was his cash cow. They were harvesting all the St. John's wort for the herb farm and all their tinctures just by going out and getting it from their parking lot. I love those kinds of stories. 
stories. A kernel to that story is everywhere around you, in every alley you see, in, in your yard. We have a wealth of medicine around us that we can learn to rediscover and use, and use professionally, use carefully, right. but learn to take advantage of. And we can learn to save the seed from them, and we can learn to grow them and propagate them. I'm convinced yeah. of that. So. Well, you know, a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, a lot of the medicines came from the plants around us. Mm-hmm. You know, in Idaho, I would take people out on medicinal herb walks and I could say with confidence that, you know, I would have everybody on the walk raise their hand and say, I would say, everybody raise their hand if they've ever used a plant for medicine. And you'd get a few hands. And as years went on, I did walks for about 20 years. As the years went on, more and more people, right? But same answer, aloe, you know, it was a plant that most of the answers for a plant that people had used for medicine was aloe vera. I could then say with confidence, do you realize that every human being standing in this valley 130 years ago got all of their medicine from plants, probably. And in that short period of time, we get none of our medicine from plants. How is that? I mean, right. that, I think, points out what we are as industrial creatures. I mean, it's sad in one way, but on the other hand, it just shows you the opportunity we're going to have as we creep back into our own landscapes yeah. and start to learn about what's really there. Yeah, because there's so much. There's you so know, much. some people say, how can you trust it? When I get stuff from the pharmacy and it's in a pill and I know and it's been tested or whatever, well, wow, I don't know. Aren't we cutting two regulations right now for every regulation we're implementing? I wonder how that's <laughs> officially going to affect our medicine. And the other thing to think about is that over 70% of that medicine in our whole pharmacopoeia, when you go to CSV or if you want to go down to Walgreens or whatever, and you look through all the medicines that are available, 70% of those medicines either came directly from plants or the ideas for those medicines yep. came from plants. Yeah, exactly. That's where it all came from. Aspirin was willow bark, and they wow. figured out how to synth artificially. Mm-hmm. But that's where the original substance came from. Valium came from valerian. Right. It's really great when you start making those kinds of connections. And I guess, you know, some of the new herbals talk about those connections more. So we have a lot more, you know, references to help us with that kind of stuff. So you have any more stories? Because if not, I want to shift on you a little bit. Well, you can shift all you want. I can come back to stories and if there's questions (laughs) or whatever. So go ahead. So Bill and I have known each other, what, for at least a decade. And we had an interaction here a while back between you and I that kind of opened my eyes. I got to learn something. And that's this notion of the word land race, L-A-N-D-R-A-C-E. And it's a term that I first ran into in my botany degree in 2001 or 2002 that I got from Arizona State University. And I understood it as something different than what you and I talked about. So what I want to reference is is that I have a lot of seeds here at the urban farm, a lot of plants that grow wild year after year. I have parsley, I've got real red cowpeas, I've got nasturtiums, I've got lettuce. I know there's more, but they just come back year after year after year without me having planted them. And recently I packaged a bunch of our real red cowpeas here into packets for our annual Great American Seed Up that I gave away at the Seed Up. And you encouraged me to call them an urban farm land race. So can you speak to that? You know, when I do that, let's put that within, you know, a context. That is what I encourage people to do. And I do that for a reason. I do that because we've lost in our backyards and the farms here in the United States, especially and around the world, that some estimates up to 90% of the diversity that we used to have. You can argue all day about the number and whether or not it's right or not. And as Colin Curry says, it's really hard to measure what we've lost. 
right? How do you measure what's gone, right? So we're only estimating anyway, but we've lost diversity. And it's my own belief that we need diversity back in our agriculture more than ever, especially with climate change, because that's the only way we will keep adapting our crops to keep up with the changes. And those changes are going to bring insects and pests as well as, you know, stresses, either extreme water or extreme drought conditions and extreme heat and cold. When we have a place-based variety that we're stewarding right then and there, that's our march back to getting that diversity. So that's why I encourage it. And that's why I encourage people to name it. It's uh-huh. your urban farm land race. Now, that's a somewhat controversial idea. I'll be honest with you. But I'll argue uh-huh. with people about it all day. If you come out of a more academic setting where, say, you're starting to, as we talked about earlier, come up with a three-letter or four- or five-letter code for every plant on the planet, uh-huh. you don't want people everywhere making up their own names. That's messy, and that just doesn't work in classification systems. So there are people that say, no, you have to look to experts. You have to make sure that things are going on. I'm the opposite of that. If there needs to be clarification and classification of our new land races that we as a grassroots movement are creating, then that's their job. Anyway, let them go through and do all that work. You know, if they want to reclassify everything and tell us we're wrong later, then they can do that. But it's important to remember that the diversity itself will not be created unless we do it, unless it's done on a grassroots level unless it's place based your climate is different than the one in queen creek where i was today 45 minutes away from you right it just is over the years saving seeds there versus where you are they'll be different and that's what we're talking about that's real diversity it's up to all of us i think now to rediscover this old idea of a place-based variety that we steward and take care of mm-hmm. that we're now calling land races and reinvigorate our own you know sustainable agriculture with that now one of the other things i think that i told you is that if you try to find out where the term came from the indigenous people that lived in northern mexico for example that helped domesticate a wild crop we now call chiltepines Oh, yeah. Um, oh, my which gosh. Is right. Capsicum annuum, which is now we know as our chili peppers and our green peppers. Same exact species and plant. Well, that came out of a wild plant that was growing in northern Mexico. And over maybe, you know, Dr. Gary Nabin at the University of Arizona estimates, and I think he talks about this in his book called Where Our Food Comes From, which is a great book. He talks about that maybe the domestication of this plant and what he means by that is that saving seeds from it in all sorts of different areas in Mexico for different reasons. I want big red ones. I want small yellow ones. I want hot ones. I want cool ones. All of that took place over a couple hundred year period. It didn't take that long Mm. to start to find the diversity in peppers by saving the seeds for different reasons in different places. And in a sense, they were creating land races. Well, they didn't call it a land race. They didn't have any term like it was their pepper. Right. Where did the term land race come from? Well, it only came after we started to make plant breeding academic. After we'd rediscovered Gregor Mendel, and we teach this in our seed schools. You know, after 1903, when three independent botanists worldwide verified Mendel's experiments and started mm-hmm. drawing conclusions about what genetics were. At that point, we had no idea. We didn't know what a chromosome was, yeah. but we had names for these parts because this is how the plant worked. And after we did that, we started developing professional plant breeding. We wanted to take advantage of these genetic tools to change our food crops more quickly. And it's those guys 
that came up with the term land race. And it was actually a derogatory term. Now that we're the real scientific, <laughs> academic plant breeders, uh -huh. all that other dirty stuff in northern Mexico, well, those are merely land races. I'm being a bit facetious here because not all of them use that tone. But you can kind of get the gist of what the modern world was starting to have an attitude for the indigenous cultures and their foods around them. I don't think that I'm over-exaggerating that sort of colonial attitude. And that was carried into plant breeding. And that's where that term comes from, land race. So mm -hmm. I like to think of it in positive terms. As I said, it's a place-based you know, selection and saving. Something that's good for you, that you love. That's what I love about what you're doing, Greg, in your variety. So save them again for people because you make those available to people too. The great thing about the seed movement is that people don't have to start from scratch with everything. We have right. community. We can share our successes. People can pick up on the momentum you've started with now for how many years? At least a decade. Yeah. They just plant themselves out. I have a forest of parsley that grows here every year. And the cowpeas, they're nitrogen fixtures. So at least you can use them as a cover crop. And here's the cool thing. At the seed up, I gave away packets of them and there was maybe 10 seeds per packet. But those 10 seeds will make 10 thousand seeds. It's amazing to me because these plants, you know, one cowpea can grow to be eight by eight and have oh my God. So hundreds of beans on it. So you're talking about in one year, that I mean, packet of seeds. Yeah. Oh my God. That's beyond exponential. Oh, it is. It's just blow me away amazing. Yeah. Well, and now you think that you've got 10 years worth of work into them. Mm -hmm. So what is that packet worth in time, yeah. energy? That's the magic in what we're doing. That's why I'm so confident and positive that the seed people, the people that figure out this exponential potential mm -hmm. in their own yard are going to have real wealth. You know, in the midst of all this zero-sum game thinking that in in order for me to have it, you can't have it. We've got to right. redistribute. No, right in our own yards, in our own alleys, all around us, there's seeds, there's abundance being created. All we have to do is tap back into that and figure out how to get our food and our medicine out of that, right. as we were talking about earlier. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. So you mentioned the Seed Up again. Do you want to just tell us all about that again? Yeah. So the Great American Seed Up is an amazing event that we hold every September here in the Phoenix metropolitan area. For those of you that are listening, go to Great AmericanSeedUp.com. There's a couple of videos up there about it. This year, 2018, it was an amazing event. It happened on September 21st and 22nd. 21st was a Friday night. We showed a movie on the 22nd. We give classes all day. You know, we had hundreds of people that came into this room. It's basically a great big seed bazaar. And this year we had, I think, almost 100 open pollinated seed varieties. And we put them in buckets and people just come and scoop up the seeds by the scoop like a teaspoon of basil. I couldn't even tell you how many seeds are in that, but I think 75 cents. Yeah. We've designed, and it's really you, Bill, that have designed the scoops of seeds to be like 10 times more than you would receive in a standard $3 packet of seeds, right? Yes. The idea, Greg, is that 90% of the cost of a packet of seeds is its packaging and the whole system to get it to you, whatever it is, whether you get it on a seed rack or through a mail order seed business. So the idea behind the seed up was to get farm direct seeds and not pay for all that packaging and just put them in big buckets and let everyone and scoop them out. Pack their own seeds, you know, right. And, and, so, and pass on all that savings, yeah. So we've actually done this now five times here in Phoenix and you know I would love to see it done somewhere else in the world. So if you're so inclined out there in the world and you want to check out how to do one of these yourself, it's Great America 
AmericanSeedUp.com and check it out. Watch the videos and, you know, see if it's something you want to do. In fact, this year's latest video, I'm making kind of a loud fool of myself because I'm so excited when we do these events because they're so epic. Well, and it's an educational event. You know, the idea, yeah, the original plan. idea yep. behind them wasn't to get everybody all their seeds every year. The idea was to get them to start with what we could find were the best land races left from the industrial storm that are still available in mm -hmm. bulk enough so that we could all learn how to save our seeds again. So we teach seed saving, you know, on Saturday, all day, we teach seed storage because these seeds could last you for decades if you keep them cool, dark, and dry. Right. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say part of our original motivation for this was, you know what, wouldn't it be great if there were thousands of people living yep. in and around us that had yep. their own seeds? I just feel better. So my lead up to this was when you were working at Native Seed Search down in Tucson, we started the conversation about doing a seed bank here in Phoenix. I was going to do a private seed bank. I bought a freezer. I bought, I don't know, a thousand pounds of seeds or something crazy like that. And I put them in the freezer and made a seed bank here in Phoenix, which we don't have one. And then a few years later, I guess it's been about five years ago now, we shifted that conversation from me having the storage of seeds to what if we had 10,000 people in the Phoenix metropolitan area that knew how to save seeds, knew what to do with them, and actually had their own seed bank in their freezer. And that's really where we're going. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Winning idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thinking outside yeah. of the box. Well, I hope and I know, actually, there are people all over the planet waking up around these ideas. Yeah. You know, nobody's coming to save us. There's no institution that can do the kind of readapting crops to microclimate mm -hmm. around us and creating the diversity, you know, you could almost say biologically need if yep. we're going to continue to grow food in these systems. So it's up to us. It's grassroots. It's a biological imperative. We've got to get as many people as we can. And now that we know what peer-to-peer -peer and networking is, you know, that we've learned through our own internet. Now we can even use those tools and network ourselves together and share seeds and share information quickly. And that is the future of seed conservation. And we're starting to see it take off all over. You know, now I'm the director of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. That's exactly what we're trying to do for our region. If you go to RockyMountainSeeds.org, to our webpage, you can find directories of people. You can link up with people directly yourself, mm -hmm. find their contact information. We don't even get involved. We're just helping provide a place for a network to start to grow. And then we spend our energy doing things like the seed up and trying to teach people in our seed schools how to get this going wherever they are. We even do seed school teacher training for people. And after this October, we're going to have train more than 100 teachers. Where did that time go? But boy, I'm so yeah. proud of all the work everybody's doing. So, no. yeah, again, I'm very hopeful about all this when we start talking seeds. Okay. And I got to get some of your cow peas, please. All right. I you can know, do that. That's do the that. one yes. thing I caught at this, this whole conversation tonight is, you know, learn to listen for those gems yep. that other people have and take some seeds home, man. That's really yeah. the wealth. Yeah. Cool. Well, greatamericanseedup.com. You can find out more of the Great American Seed Up. Tell us about Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance real quick and where to find more information about that, Bill. Okay. So, again, go to rockymountainseeds.org and you'll find everything you need. Join us 
if you want to support this movement in the most efficient way, you know, sign up and be a member. You know, what we're trying to do is get everybody to sign up for five bucks a month. As one of our board members, Casey O'Leary from the Snake River Sea Co-op says, folks, that's not even a beer a month. <laughs> or a coffee and a month, for that us, matter. Yeah, and that helps us keep the whole network up and running so we can come together and support each other. You'll find listings for our seed schools, seed schools in a day, our green schools, seed school teacher training on there. So it's all kind of one-stop shopping. If you're outside the Rocky Mountain West and you want to join us, I'd say over half the people that have joined our network aren't in the Rocky Mountain West. I mean, we're open to everybody. I mean, when we spend money and focus on things, we focus it in the Rocky Mountain West. But we're open source for anybody who wants to join and help. And we especially like people from other regions who want to start their own regional organization or find one. We'd love to help you do that, too. Our goal is to get this whole network nationwide up and running and recreating. Remember that, recreating what we once had in this country. In the 30s, clear up into the 40s, we had hundreds of thousands, if not a million farms, each one growing and saving some of its own seeds. And that network that we need now so much, you know, is gone. And now we get to have the fun of recreating it. And let's have fun. We'll take it. And I also want to thank everybody that's joined us tonight. And I appreciate you showing up live. And for those of you on the podcast, yay, thanks for joining us. We have an amazing amount of people that join us. We'll have over 3,000 listens to this event tonight just on our podcast alone. So thank you for listening. Thank you for contributing. Thank you for being involved in what, in my opinion, is the most important thing that we can be doing in our time, and that is figuring out where our food comes from and making that happen. So thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great day. As I like to say, farm out, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Growing plants that thrive in our yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's 
denalicanning.com forward slash free.